0: Hey, everybody. A welcome to Snark Monkey number 34 with writer-producer Trey Calloway. Great conversation with Trey. As of this recording, uh, today is uh, Saturday, July 25th. As I post this, last night saw, sadly, the series finale after only one season of the CW show The Messengers, which Trey was a part of. But never fear, he has already moved on, and as is pretty standard in his career as you listen to this, as a matter of fact, I kind of press him a little bit to defend the TV reboot of the Rush Hour film franchise, which will be airing on CBS possibly in January. And you know what? He does a pretty good job. I'm kind of excited about seeing it. He's really excited about it. Uh, Talk about a guy who's done such a variety of things. He goes from teen slasher movie to uh, medical sci-fi drama to police procedural. One thing that you can't say about Trey is that he's been pigeonholed as any particular kind of writer or showrunner. And that's kind of great. We have a great conversation. He came out of radio in Tulsa, Oklahoma, of all things. Still has a passion for old school radio jingles. He talks a little bit about... Uh, the CSI boot camp, the idea of being thrown into the deep side of the pool as far as show running, which is very definitely something that takes a little while to, to learn how to do, but he has come through it in admirable fashion, and this is good stuff. And he's also, uh, yet again, another working professional who is also teaching at the same time, imparting his wisdom Two young creative types uh, at the USC School of Cinematic Arts. How cool is that? He's a cool guy. It's a good conversation. And also we kick off the whole, <laughs> the whole podcast reminiscing uh, quite regionally about the demise of the old school Sherman Oaks Galleria. And I only bring it up and I leave it in the pod- podcast simply because no matter what part of the country you are in, if you've seen any movie that talks about the valley, Valley Girl, uh, Fast Times at Richmond High to a certain extent, Mall Rats, <laughs> the Sherman Oaks Galleria plays a large part in the iconic pub culture history of the San Fernando Valley. So yeah, Trey Calloway, great conversation, really fun podcast. Enjoy uh, Snark Monkey number 34.
1: Always dreamed of doing a movie across the street uh, at, at the Galleria. old Galleria, yeah, which was really tremendous in its final days.
0: Yeah, yeah, I it, remember that too because it
1: was it was spooky. It was spooky. There was like maybe two small shops that were ma and pa shops that somehow had a lease that it, you know extended to the bitter end, to the end. very end, right? And then there was the you know whatever it was, the Macy's or whatever that was the like Robinson's a flag. May. Robinson's May, that's yeah. what it was. But everything else was abandoned. Yeah, it slowly started to shut down,
0: and it was it. It, it reminded me of, like, Dawn of the Dead. Yeah, 100%. Because <laughs> it, it was really quiet and weird in there. Because uh, cause the food court was something we, back in that day, when before we were yeah. making any kind of money, the food court was a place we would always hang out. And it was yeah. Just a
1: bunch of us just Plus, m- was mocking the, it people. It was the legendary Galleria. It was know? the galleria. I saw movies there. I got my ear pierced there. I, I mean, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Things happen
0: there. <laughs> I can tell. I do have this little Rain Man thing about I can remember every movie I've ever seen. I can remember where I saw it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I don't know why. That's good. It's just part of the, that's the thing ingrained in me. Yeah. Usually I can tell you who I saw it with. Oh, um, good. And I saw Pulp Fiction and Saving Private Ryan over there. Wow. I remember it very well. Some of the last movies they ever actually showed. There, yeah. I now I don't know what it is. It's never been a mall really since then. It's just no. some weird. No. I constantly run into people over there who are going, where is the mall? Yeah, and it's it, like, oh, there you. There isn't one, really. You pulled in and parked for no reason. Hey, <laughs> um, okay, reminiscent about the Sherman Oaks Gallery, everybody. Yeah, so yeah. how long have you lived in Southern California? Because you are, are you an Oklahoma native? It will actually, well,
1: yes, I am. Born, I'm born a Texas raised... boy, by the way, and uh, I don't know if we're at odds. It's a good thing we're on the okay. other side. Okay. All right. Of You're going to leap across? And no, so I no. moved
0: out pretty quickly after high school. Well, so did I. Okay, I, I
1: I actually was born and raised in Tulsa, Oklahoma, but it will be 30 years next month in Los Angeles. So far longer than I was ever in Oklahoma.
0: Isn't it weird when you reach that point where yeah. you have been somewhere else longer than where you grew up? Yes, yeah. that's a to me that was always a weird feeling because I. I don't, I, you know, I don't wear my Texas pride on my sleeve necessarily, but mm. but I, it's a place I'm, I'm from. You it's know? part of you, yes. yeah. yeah. You can't get rid of it as much as I
1: try. Where, where Tulsa, Oklahoma? It's Tulsa. So I find that you know, when when I get a couple of beers in me, the y'all slip in, <laughs> and uh, and then usually right around the fall, I start to. It's a weird. There's a weird nostalgia vibe that happens where I start right. listening to more country music. Really, I do, and and I and I and I I. I I have, I've always got a toothpick. Like there's some, there's just seriously. Things, yeah, it's a weird thing, and I think it's why the fall. Uh, well, because there's actual seasons in I Oklahoma. Think there's seasons that you miss. Mm-hmm. Also, my birthday is Christmas Eve, so uh, so a lot of positive memories associated with that around the holidays and the like. Yeah, you know, and that that take me back. Mentally and emotionally to Oklahoma.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. So I have none of that. I, I, I don't miss. I don't miss Odessa, Texas. Uh. I mean, my apologies to the folks back in Odessa.
1: I do not miss it at all. Well, P.S. I I am a card carrying SAP, so you know uh, I, I tend to get nostalgic over over. You
0: know. I do do that though. I do have this thing about the autumn where there is this weird melancholy mm-hmm. that I enjoy. Mm-hmm. I revel. I like melancholy. I love talking about <laughs> uh, one of the people who was in this very scene not too long ago David Isaacs No oh, yeah I know um, David we both teach at USC That's right and we talked about the comedy ni- initiative and stuff and yeah. we talked about cheers and that theme song uh-huh. which is I think iconic for so many reasons but part of it is because it is not a big fun peppy theme song no, it's like not- right. hey come in the bar no. let's have a drink dun, no. dun, 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 dun. it's this melancholy There's a little alm-
1: bittersweet edge to it Yeah yeah
0: and I and I think that's what
1: Gives it something special. Yeah, it sets a tone right from the beginning.
0: So I'm a big fan of melancholy. I'm right there with you, man. (laughs) Now, I think you and I also have something else in common, if you can say that being from that part of the country is in common, even though we are mortal enemies. Yeah, we're from the heartland, man. Um, Is that the heartland? That's the heartland. Is it really? It is. Because I always thought the Midwest was considered more the heartland. Mm. And and do you consider Oklahoma the south?
1: No. The southwest? I consider, no. The heartland. Texas is is its own unique animal.
0: Texas is Texas.
1: Oklahoma by virtue of being dead in the center of the country. Yeah. In the heart of That's the heartland. United States. It's All right.
0: I I I think that Oklahomans have more of a sense of what Oklahoma is than anybody else I in think the country. you may be right because everyone else tends to avoid it. Yeah, and just or just not really know what it is. Yeah, it's a place to pass through on I-40. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um I I believe that at some point in your uh, illustrious career you are actually a radio professional. I was.
1: I was on Speaking of Tulsa, uh Tulsa's 74 74 KRMG. Oh, see I was even going to ask you if you could still do the yeah. the break and
0: the what what was what was KRMG, K-R-M-G
1: still is uh it, it is a 100,000 watt AM stereo station that uh is considered uh to it's beloved by Tulsans as sort of a a a news source so okay. when when things go wrong when there's tornadoes when uh, which is a, every other day every other day when there's a big college football upset when there's <laughs> which is <yeah>. which is <laughs> which every is. other day um uh krmg is sort of the go-to source and they used to play music back in my day so i i so you were a I, music I, dj i was spinning records yep. and and it was all live and it was before you know all this digital fun yeah Existed. Um, so you have the shared experience, I think, of
0: having to put the. Uh, for us, it was the NOAA weather radio. You were have, you would have to break in every time there was a tornado warning.
1: Yeah, you were always was watching. A lot. You were always watching the AP wire, and there was a very clear, you know, set of instructions <laughs> that you had to follow when there was a, a thunderstorm watch, then a thunderstorm warning, and yes. then a tornado watch, and a tornado warning. You know, and a
0: hundred thousand
1: watt flame AM meant yeah. that you had like ninety
0: counties that you had to cover. Well, that
1: was the best part of it all, is because. I was a graveyard jock. So at night, you know, AM signals tend to skip far distances anyway. Yes. So it was not just Tulsa, nor just Oklahoma. Those signals would skip to Arkansas, Kansas, <laughs> Missouri. I would be getting all sorts of calls from strange people in the middle of the night. But generally speaking, yeah, we were all focused on Tulsa and what was happening there.
0: Now, were you, did you get interested in radio in, in high school or early on? Uh, or you know, what, early what on, my, yeah.
1: my family was in advertising. My father uh, directed. And Produced a lot of television and radio commercials. So did my mom, and so, and then I had done some voice work, and and I think that's where I really got the bug. Um, I, I had done some voice work at a local place in Tulsa. Actually, I did a lot of work with Jeannie uh, Sh- Triplehorn, who oh, wow. was a uh, Tulsan and was on the local on the local local uh, AOR uh, radio station there. She KMOD. was on the radio. She was known as Jeannie Summers then. I did not know That's that. That's right. So uh, I did voiceover work with her and, and a few other folks, and then I sort of at least thought, uh, oh, gee, I want to be a DJ when I grow up. And then my father, <laughs> to his everlasting credit, um, got me in a room with uh, an extremely talented and um, well-known voiceover artist out here now. His name is Ed Hopkins. Uh, but at the time, he was a DJ at, a, at, a, at an FM station in Tulsa. So my dad arranged for me to spend the day with Ed Uh, which was sort of a genius way of convincing me never to be a disc jockey. (laughs) But I still wound up doing it anyway. Um, I wound up doing it anyway right before I I moved out here for uh, for college.
0: When it's fun, I mean, when you're young, it's fun because you're getting paid just to... Scream over records. I mean, you were like top forty DJ. Is that it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: I don't know if it was top forty. It was a weird. Yeah, I always uh, liken KRMG's programming at the time to your iPod shuffle. Yes. So you know, you would get (laughs) a Sinatra song followed by (laughs) Naked Eyes, followed by you know. I uh, believe
0: they referred to that as a full service radio station. There was something for everyone. Nothing like that, as far as I know anymore.
1: Uh, That's great. But yeah, you're right. You're. It's good to do it when you're young before it becomes. You know, you're. You're 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 one of those other jocks, yeah, like like doing, me. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Thanks, Trey. All right. Um, well, no, I I mean, you and I have a, a similar kind of uh, parallel path. For me, uh, being in Odessa, kind of another isolated place, but also wanting to do something creative. Yeah. Um, I was fascinated with radio. Yeah, I still love it. And um, I was drawn to that because it was hard to do what I really love to do, which, I mean, I was making Super 8 movies, yeah, you know, in yeah. the alleyways of Odessa, Texas, yeah. substituting for war-torn Germany in my yeah. World War II epic, stuff it's a like shame that. shame we didn't find each other earlier. <laughs> Should have been really... A- but, but it, I, I ended up going to film school at USC, so, mm. I, you know, I, it was just a creative outlet at yeah. that point. W- at what point were you writing or thinking about, were you thinking about acting? Were you thinking about directing?
1: It was what- a little bit of all of it, uh, writing since I was a kid, yeah. uh, old enough to pick up a pen, but, um, but partially through, again, through watching what my folks did, you know, uh, I sort of fell in love with production. Then like everybody else who's ever sat across from you and, and uh, given you one of these interviews, uh, I can tell you exactly where I was in the summer of 1977 standing in line in front of the Fox Theater in Tulsa using my entire allowance to see Star Wars 11 times. And uh, and so that was... What, First day? The, there on opening yeah, day? Yeah, absolutely. Do you and remember
0: s- how you heard about it?
1: Yeah, I do. Isn't it
0: strange to think about now how
1: well quickly things become viral? And I wonder I wonder if how many other people had that experience. I mean, we're roughly the same age, I'm guessing, and um and for me it was uh begging my parents to stay up late one night to see the Tonight Show, which they would rarely let me do. Right. And for whatever reason they let me do it that night, but what I didn't know was that night on the Tonight Show as a as a publicity stunt in the middle of uh, Carson's monologue, Darth Vader walked down the middle aisle of the studio. I have no memory of that whatsoever. And I I was like, "Who's that?" <laughs> and it just blew my young mind. And yeah. so then I just began to gather as much information as I could.
0: It was it was something that it was pure word of mouth, mm-hmm. even though the the machinery had begun to promote it you're right but i don't remember seeing a trailer no, i don't no. remember seeing any there was no uh, pre you know they didn't have any of the merchandising done no. I, don't, I don't think they 20th century fox thought that they had a hit on their no hands. not at all so but but there was a buzz on it there was Unlike, a buzz people were talking
1: about it but i'm not sure
0: how or why the science fiction nerds in my high school were talking about it yeah. already knew about yeah. it and the and somehow to the rest of it, it sounded cool because on that opening day in every town in America,
1: how long was the line? Uh, it was enormous. It yeah. was halfway around the block and, and it was that way every single time I went back to see it. Yeah. But I waited gleefully. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, you know, there was that. And then, um, and then the real big clincher for me uh, was in my junior year of high school. I guess it would have been roughly. Um, uh, Francis Ford Coppola uh, filmed The Outsiders in Tulsa. In Tulsa. And um, and so, you know, I'd done school theater and a little bit of commercial work with my dad. And so, like everybody else, I went and auditioned. And I got a role as the Soch in concession stand was my part. Ooh. And, uh... And, uh I remember your work. Yeah, well, I have one line. Do I you? A, I have a line and a close-up. Oh. In The Outsiders. I'm a Soch in concession stand. Uh, and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yes with Diane Lane and C Thomas Howell and 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 that just that experience of you know going through uh, we had to go to stunt school for a couple of weeks oh, and wow. some in some rumble scenes later in the film but then just being there on those couple of nights at a drive-in theater in Tulsa and it's all the, the I
0: mean, that, it must have been a fairly big production for for Tulsa. Oh, huge! I mean, it was a, a, a kind of an independent film for Coppola.
1: It was, but it was also a beloved book. Yeah. And so, you know, everyone everyone knew what was happening. So and, you uh, felt
0: the magic of just being on the set, three hundred percent, of seeing what was really going on. You had been around the commercial
1: production thing, but, but this, was this was a, a big deal. Oh, yeah. wow! So that 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 sealed it for me. So you know, I went to to University of Oklahoma for a couple of years, and then got into USC film school and came out here and started all over again. Now, what year was that? <laughs> USC. Yeah, Can nine, you say? Do you want to say? Okay. 1985.
0: Okay. All right. That was a year I had already moved
1: on. And I said uh,
0: 30 years ago.
1: So and you got to work there. in the, quote, new... Uh, building. Well, that's so funny. Yeah. I, I tell my students this all the time, you know, because, uh, it was when I moved in, it was brand new and, and there was this amazing new film school and literally the paint and the carpets, you know, everything was yeah. brand new. Yeah. And then now it's bicycle parking.
0: Yes. It's and, it, uh, there's a
1: real new film.
0: School. It's been relegated to, Oh, here, music department, you can have this now. <laughs> it's a hand-me-down because exactly. when I was there, I was there on the day that Steven Spielberg and George Lucas and Robert Zemeckis, uh, ceremoniously broke ground on on your school oh, yeah. with a shovel. And oh. uh, everybody crowded around Spielberg. <laughs> Lucas took off, and nobody knew who Zemeckis <laughs> was. And he was standing by the fountain by himself at near Norris going,
1: Does anybody want to talk to me? Because um, I, I cut a pretty big check to be here. Yeah.
0: Um, <laughs> that's amazing. I yeah. mean, you, have se- you obviously are there a lot. That new uh, place is spectacular.
1: Yeah, it's the house that George built, but it's really... Um, it's really spectacular. And I, and I I also remind my students, uh, you know, the, look, USC, I look, I recognize I'm a member of the faculty. I'm obligated to say this, but I truly believe it's the greatest film school in the world. Uh, you don't have to go there to be a success by any means. There are not only other great film schools in Southern California, but all around the world. And you don't have to go to any of them to be successful. But but as film schools go, I wouldn't trade in that experience I had at SC for anything. And I see my students uh, every semester benefiting from it in the same ways that I did. But that new facility is so over the top extraordinary that I, I, I will often catch myself saying, wait till you guys find yourselves working at Sunset Gower or, you know, <laughs> CBS Radford or Rally?" you know. Yeah, or, you see, know.
0: I had the I had the flip. Uh, experience of that Uh, for us it was if you can actually make something in these bungalows and in this environment then you're going to be fine when you get out there
1: but these kids don't have any idea how good they have it yeah i mean come on those sumner redstone tv stages they're a hundred times better than anything else in
0: truly ultra state-of-the-art stuff yeah that's amazing but is the is the essential i don't know I don't want to use zeitgeist. Mm. Is the, is the energy still the same? I mean, I think it is. The creative energy that you get from young people coming in, wanting to do what they say they want to do. Is it still feel the same? Here's
1: the thing. First of all, it never fails that I've been teaching there for 10 years now. And it never fails that the, the, the the day that I'm teaching, which is generally Tuesdays on on that night, it's always, there's a million things going on at work. And, it's the worst possible time for me to have to get in the car and drive downtown. Yeah. And I go down. And, and impart I, wisdom and, to young and minds. And then, down, and then it never fails. I walk into the room on those days and I'm immediately greeted by, you know, 12 uber-talented, completely unjaded, wide-eyed, optimistic senior writing students who remind me all over again, over and over again, uh, why this is the greatest job in the world. Right? It's nice to know they're not... Jaded.
0: I, I, I you, you never know about new generations because there's they're inundated with so much stuff. Yeah, and there's so much content out there, and there's and there seems to also be a wave of of cynicism that can creep in. Um, and it, but it's nice to know that they're really energized about. I want to make. Good stuff. I they want to make are. great content. They
1: are. They're completely passionate, and that passion is very infectious. And so I always wind up taking it back with me for a couple of days. And, you know. <laughs> and until the real world, Hollywood begins to crush your spirit that's again. Right. I'm beaten back down, and then I claw my way back downtown.
0: <laughs> You're on a roller coaster ride, aren't you, Trey? It's amazing you didn't bring a bottle of something no, with you.
1: Oh, no. That's what antidepressants are for. <laughs> so,
0: what, um, so, so, was writing. Always, kind of the focus when you got to SC. It was it
1: well. It wasn't at first because I went to I went to. What did OU? you want to be when you grew up? Well, I I thought I wanted to. I knew I wanted to be in film, and and then I was at OU for a couple of years, and they had a tiny film department, which was pretty much one class. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I remember shooting a sixteen millimeter film for that class, and somewhere halfway through the, you know, uh, forgive the ancient reference, but somewhere halfway through the A and B rolling editorial process right. i realized wow i really hate this part of the process <laughs> i really hate this but what did i enjoy the most in all the production process what did i enjoy the most coming up with the story yeah. writing the script that was that was the most fun so by the time i was ready to apply to sc um i applied uh, directly to the the, the writing division uh, which was then pretentiously called filmic writing but, um, Ooh, was it really? Yeah, it was, oh. um, but anyway, <laughs> Why uh, they changed that, yeah, that was ugly. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, then, yeah, then it was four years of, uh, of work in the writing division and, and getting to work with, and this is the one of the things I find fascinating about USC in particular and the film school, um, is that it, it, it there, there are cycles to it, um, and, and I came in at, a, at fortuitously at, at the end of one of these cycles in in terms of the faculty and there were there were these extraordinary for lack of a better way to put it lions in winter who were the faculty and the these were men and women who had who had worked on some of the greatest films in history you know and uh and f- f- for the most part most of them were no longer teaching a year or two after I left and and then not long thereafter were are no longer with us um, but just amazing people so I benefited greatly from you know getting to one of my greatest mentors was William Kelly who uh won the Oscar for co-writing Witness Uh, which is regularly taught in film schools as, you know, one of the one of the great quintessential
0: screenplays. Yeah.
1: Um, You know, so I got to I get to learn at his feet, you know, or Abraham Polanski, who was one of the Hollywood 10 blacklisted screenwriters, maybe the angriest man I've ever met, (laughs) rightfully so. But but just an incredible fountain of energy and experience. And Stuart Stern, who wrote Rebel Without a Cause, was one of my professors and. Uh, and then, rather than you know go buy the Sid Field book that everyone does anyway, uh, I, Sid Field was one of my professors, and I <laughs> right. you know I, I I took his class, so it was that kind of thing where, you know, you just you felt like you were running around the feet of giants, but uh, but it was tremendous, and and I think uh, to the great credit of of the administration at that particular school now. What they've really focused on, I think, successfully is a new generation of professors who are all active working professionals. And it may make it difficult to schedule classes from time to time because it's like, oh, I got to be on set. I can't actually be there Tuesday. But you know what I'll do? I'll bring my students to set with me. It's that kind of thing oh, that that see, I think the students really benefit from greatly now in ways that I I never got to.
0: I can say to. that I, I I missed that experience and I, I and I'm not bitter about it because I thought I had for uh, 75% of my experience at USC was amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I had too many of the guys who were long past yeah. having been in and and uh, when I arrived at ni- in 1980 as a freshman, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, the, the Lucas Factor was as high as, I- as anything. Sure, of course. I mean, it was in full-blown... I mean, USC was the new rock and roll. That's right. Because people had just started hearing mm-hmm. about film mm-hmm. schools. So I had guys who had... You know, worked on a season of Gunsmoke Mm -hmm. and and couldn't get a job anymore and they could care about less about, you know, Lucas and those guys. And and you kind of had to be a rebel to break through what was going on then. Now, again, I got I had some amazing professors. I did get the chance to witness. I mean, I was in the same room. With Ruben Mamoulian mm-hmm. at one point, who yeah. uh, that's in, you know incredible yeah. to be in his uh, Clint Eastwood and Don Siegel came yeah. for a screening one night of yeah. uh, a couple of their films together. Uh, I got to meet Spielberg. I got yeah. to you know tell Zemeckis uh, that I uh, knew who he was. <laughs> and he was very happy. You finally arrived, Bob. <laughs> what was interesting though is that Zemeckis did say something to me. He's, he he and I don't know that everybody would agree with with this, but his experience was that. Uh, making movies at USC was infinitely tougher than it was once he got into the industry that he actually seemed to have if you That's can make it through that he right, said right, right. you can you'll be fine right it's like boot camp yeah and yeah. i think to at least his experience was that it was very tough to get anything approved and push forward and that right. you were kind of fighting against uh whatever parameters they set on you but if you could get if you could make something special out of that then you could survive in the industry. Interesting. Yeah, I don't know.
1: Well, fight on.
0: <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, enough sc talk. Although yeah, we'll yeah. come back around to it. But uh, uh, what kind of stories were you gravitating to as far as writing? I mean, you mentioned Star Wars, but but once you started to, I, I found that my experience was once I got past the stuff that was kind of very, you know, adolescent, uh, uh, attractive to an adolescent. Right. Right. I began to get very pretentious. Yeah. And and. Um really fell in love with some pretty heavy filmmakers at that mm-hmm. point, which is what you do in college, yeah, what started to resonate with you at that point
1: well it's interesting um the because I was not one of those students at u s c who went on my parents' credit cards you know i i I worked the three four jobs to be there, and one of those jobs, which wound up becoming a career for me for a while until I started writing full time was working for an ad agency and um and it was a local broadcast promotion firm here in LA and i started working as a copywriter and then eventually became creative director of the place after i graduated wow okay but 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 that could have been your life it, it could have been and in some ways it still is and yeah. i'll get yeah. around to the point of all that in terms of my writing but the but but this particular broadcast promotion firm we did a lot of theatrical trailers and we did um uh i don't know if you remember at the time but ktla the the local um CW affiliate right. was at the time it wasn't affiliated with anyone and it was simply known as KTLA your movie station and they <laughs> just right. ran a bunch of old movies and <laughs> that was uh, basically their Saturday and Sunday programming was and, it. and a lot of
0: weekday stuff that yeah. was
1: it and so my job uh, one of my first jobs working for this particular agency was uh was watching all these old films and and then pulling clips from them audio clips and then writing radio commercials and uh and so it became its own film school. I wound up, whatever I didn't see at USC, I wound up seeing, you know, everything else. Because <laughs> they would have this. these
0: catalogs from all the major studios, oh, just yeah. their, all their back catalogs, all the good and bad. Stuff,
1: good and bad, absolutely, yeah. all things in between. And so I wound up watching all that stuff, and, and then through my continued work uh, at that agency, and then I had a freelance company where I did taglines and and trailers for movies. In fact, I wrote the trailer for the re-release of Star Wars. I wrote the line, See it again for the very first time. <laughs> Um. I, uh, <laughs> uh, okay, now we'll play the tagline game. I did the tagline for. Uh, yeah, give me the tagline. Uh, okay, okay. Uh, 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 I won't ho- get this. Home Alone, the family comedy without the family. Home <laughs> Home Alone Two. He's up past his bedtime in the city that never sleeps. <laughs> the Mask from Zero to Hero. Uh, uh oh, and I want to I won an Entertainment Weekly unofficial Oscar for best tagline for Predator Two. He's in town with a few days to kill. <laughs> Um, anyway, so I did all this and you
0: remember these. I remember,
1: well, because here's why. So, uh, the whole long winded point of this is you can never wash advertising out of your blood, Mm -hmm. right? This is, this was the family business. It's what I knew and loved. And, um, and so as a result, when you ask me what kinds of things, you know, inspired me or which kind of directions did I want to start writing? Um, it was, it was varied but it, there was always there was always some little voice in the back of my head that would say, um, whatever this idea is, uh, regardless of the genre. Uh, could you walk up? to could, could you could you could you describe it in 10 words? And could you walk up to 10 people in the street and get them excited about it with those 10 words? Um, and so. Probably to the great consternation of my representation over the years. I have been the kind of guy who, you know, I I like to say life's too short to tell the same story over and over again. But my credits reflect it because I've written, you know, kids animation. I've written Westerns. I've written sci-fi. I've written crime procedurals. You know, now I'm writing an action comedy like Uh, I'm all over the place. I'm sure a shrink could take a look at all of it and find the, you know, the appalling and obvious emotional threads that in all of it. But, (laughs) but, um, but I, for me, it, it, it always begins with what, whatever the genre is. Um, it always begins with, you know, can I, can I name this tune in five notes? Yeah can i you know and that became the true that it's it was a really beneficial i wouldn't have realized it at the time but it was a really in retrospect really beneficial uh impact of doing all of that advertising and it's something that i still have a great amount of respect for i have many friends who were still in that business and 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 even when i'm running a show you know when i was doing the messengers i would get sent the promos and it's common for writers especially in television to get the, to get the promos for for their work and be be pissed frankly yeah. it's like they're giving everything away but i've been on both sides of that equation and and nothing excites me more than uh, a good promo um even if it gives everything away i don't get you know it's it's okay it's it's okay as long as it brings eyeballs yeah and gets someone's interest and so i i've always whatever i'm writing there's always that little voice that's in the back of my head
0: well there's something to be said for that the idea of being able to do something with an economy of words, which is yeah. what great taglines or any good advertising is yeah. about, is, is can you, you know, get a major thought across in a short amount of time mm-hmm. and do it in a way that hasn't been done before? Mm-hmm. And you're, you're trying to, you know, hook people in.
1: Economy of drama, brevity of wit. I'm always, and I approach not just the project that way, whatever it may be, but every scene within it. It's right. like, what is this scene? What's the what's the shortest way to describe to myself what right. this scene is about?
0: And that goes to characters' dialogue of, you know, do you have to say everything and get it out expositionally, or can you say it with a thought or a look or a or a or an action or whatever? Absolutely. So, I mean, I, I'm i assuming that's what you're talking about, is yeah, that translates yeah. directly to, you know, even when you expand it to 22 or yeah. 44 minutes.
1: No, that's right. Ah, wow. So I start, you know, I mean, in terms of, Professional beginnings, and I, I, like everybody else, I wrote my first script for for the Corman's. Uh, oh, it was actually really? not Gene Corman, it, or not not Roger Corman, rather, but his brother Gene. Um, what was uh, the title? It was called Texas T. It was about a terrorist takeover of the strategic petroleum reserve along the Gulf Coast of Texas,
0: with a reference to the Beverly Hills exactly. theme song. Exactly, <laughs> <laughs> that is spectacular. And,
1: uh, yeah, that was the first, but um, you know, and then and then I started selling screenplays from there. Most, well, pretty much all of which were never made because, as you know, you can make a good living in this town writing things that no one ever actually gets to see. Right. Uh, and then... Were you doing
0: all this while you were doing the advertising? You
1: still had this... Uh, right around the time of the Corman sale, uh, I signed with William Morris at the time, and then that was the end of my, uh, my tenure as a creative director at this particular ad agency. And so, I did a little bit of freelance stuff work, or freelance work after that, but...
0: Because you could have gone, I'm very comfortable, I'm making a good living, I'm doing this thing that has been going on for 10 years. Yeah, yeah. Did you reach... uh, a breaking point with that, or or was it just, this is the thing I've always wanted to do? It was and-
1: the brass ring that brought me out here in the first place, yeah. and I wanted to at least try to reach for it. And uh, You
0: knew you could probably go back if you had to, that, right?
1: That was always a possibility, and, and you, you know, know, know I was grateful to have the work that I had in advertising, and it certainly helped me pay off those USC student loans. Oh, God. Um, I'm going
0: to, I'm almost done.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I still sometimes wake up from a nightmare that another one has arrived (laughs) to do. There will be a bill. I forgot one. Hey, by the way, we forgot. (laughs) Yeah. (sighs) Um. but yeah, sorry. No, Uh, that's
0: okay. uh, I, 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 so, so where in that process, as you're basically making a living, not seeing anything come to fruition, what was the first great gig? Uh,
1: it happened at once. Two things happened at once. Uh, I, I, had, I had written I uh, sold an original pitch to Columbia for a big science fiction epic, which was called Nightingale One at the time. And, uh, and I remember pitching it to Peter Goober and his whole team at Mandalay, sitting around a conference table, a bunch of strangers I didn't know. And semi-sarcastically, after I finished my pitch, the last words out of my mouth were, oh, by the way, this would make a really killer TV series, too. And everyone sort of laughed politely. And then they hired me to write the movie. So I wrote the movie based on my original pitch and, uh, and, um, long story short, uh, four drafts later, it went nowhere Mm. as many movies, uh, do as the case with most. And, um, it went nowhere, but somebody who'd been sitting in that original, um, pitch called me up and said, you know, you made that joke at the end of the pitch about it would make a really good TV series, but I thought you were right. And so I took the liberty of sending that script to UPN, which was a network that existed at the time. <laughs> and, uh, and they think so, too. So they want to meet with you about adapting it into a pilot. So that happened. But at the same time, it happened because the feature process, the development process had gone well. I got another call from Columbia saying, would you like to write a sequel to I Know What You Did Last Summer? So I said, of course. And they had me come in with a pitch. Uh, unbeknownst to me, they actually hired two writers at the same time to write two completely different You were competing drafts. against
0: two other guys.
1: So Stephen Gagan, Academy Award-winning Stephen Gagan, wrote one script. And, and then I wrote another. And neither of us knew about the existence of the other guy. And um, so those things happened at once. So my first movie, I Still Know What You Did Last Summer, was was produced. And at the same time, the pilot that I adapted from my original feature at UPN got picked up to a series, which became known as Mercy Point. So, uh, that was, that all happened at the same time, really within the same year. So that, that's when I sort of blew out of the gate, I guess.
0: Yeah. So there's your, Hey, this Hollywood thing is
1: easy. Yeah. I, can, I can do movies. <laughs> I can do this all I day do long. TV. I yeah. can just knock them out. Yeah,
0: exactly. But you were on, you were on the road at that point and you became a working writer. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell me kind of Tick off some of the other things that started happening. Well,
1: yeah, that what happened from that point, you know, Mercy Point uh, was a sci fi medical drama, 23rd century space station hospital. It was usually referred to as ER in space by the critics. Right. And, uh, but it was an enormous ensemble cast starring Joe Morton and 500 other actors. We got the crew from The X Files, we shot in Vancouver. It was a massive space station set it was incredibly expensive it was a probably about five to ten years ahead of where it needed to be for visual effects um, and so it was incredibly expensive uh, that's one of probably the biggest reasons why it didn't last long yeah
0: but, because UPN was not exactly cranking out the hits at that point they weren't
1: and they were having regular affiliate revolts every upfront because you know they they, they reinvented themselves a lot and, right uh, and that particular season we were we were supposed to be a companion piece to Star Trek Voyager I think but the affiliates had a revolt and and they wanted more of what was it called brandy uh the yeah that oh uh, uh,
0: moesha the brand yeah that's you're that talking to the voice of the upn spots for uh, a good year before go. danny Bonaducci took it over oh, there you go that, that was me going right after an all-new moesha oh that is you that it, is 100 it, you it's malcolm and eddie oh and that's right they only picked the whitest guy on radio in Los Angeles <laughs> to go do the Malcolm and Eddie and Moesha spots. That's
1: fantastic. Yeah. That's yeah. fantastic. I just met uh, Joel Madison, who created Malcolm and Eddie and, uh, on a radio show. And that's so funny. It's all coming back. <laughs> yes. Anyway, point is. Um, uh, when uh, when it was over, although it was short lived, it gave me the bug in 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 all the best ways and uh,
0: specifically for episodic television. For television yeah.
1: yeah, And and although I, st- I I still work in features, I still love features. If you held a gun to my head, I would absolutely say, "Oh, give me fee- give me TV, give me TV." Isn't that what everybody's saying? right I now? I guess so. Now it didn't used to be that way. No, but, I uh, mean certainly
0: the area you're talking about. It was I want to get my movie made. You know, you're talking about. I mean. It probably still happens, but how many people, how many studios are paying three guys good money yeah, to write a script to see right. which one works out? Uh, that's just not happening anymore unless it's a $100
1: million plus budget kind of monster film. It's very true. It's very true. But my experience, I mean, I... I, I I recognized it for what it was. It was a lotto win. Literally, the first pilot I wrote went to series. Right? That never happens. And so, as a result, I came into the process bass backwards because I hadn't, I hadn't staffed. I hadn't worked my way up. You know, and suddenly, you know, here's my first show, and it's on the air, and uh, and I'm running it, and I had no earthly idea what I was doing. I mean, every day was filled with horrific. Nightmare-inducing out-of-body experiences, where I would be looking down at myself, saying, "What are you doing? What? You don't know how to run a room?
0: What well, you- what's your? What, what, I mean, what? Your, your temperament seems to be very even-keeled. Uh, I mean, have you always kind of been?" A rather calm person i, I, yeah, and,
1: I try but you because know that, the,
0: that you have to have a temperament you have to you have to make a, a million decisions yeah, that's you your have job. to manage people yeah. you have to tell people their their baby is ugly a that's lot right. that's right and that's right. and and you're dealing with egos everything from talent to writers i mean yeah. there's there's so much going on there and you can either be the asshole which you don't right. seem to be or you yeah. can be the guy who takes a dagger every time he has to say something That's right. negative to well, somebody. Well, and the good
1: and the bad thing about that particular experience is, I didn't know any of that yet. <laughs> okay? <laughs>
0: this so, was all brand new. It friends, was yeah. all
1: new. And, I, you know, there is the old adage, fake it till you make it. But then there's also prove it or lose it. And so right. I, I was in that place of, like, really, I had no idea what I was doing. But it gave me the bug. And then what I wound up doing for television was developing a lot after that because, uh, you know, I was just on a variety of people's radar for development. And, and so... I, I think, you know, at this point, I think I've, I've sold somewhere around 18 to 20 pilots. So the, but a lot of them were in those years that followed Mercy so Point. So you were just going and pitching all was the going time. going and pitching all the time. I wound up doing it's Which a, is a whole different skill in itself. A completely different skill. I wound up uh, doing a pilot with Tim Burton uh, called Lost in Oz and just a bunch of other pilots for every other network. And, and then ultimately what happened was, and I remember this moment distinctly. Uh, i had kept a foot in the feature world. I'd worked on some other features as well. And, and I was, uh, helping a team of writers, one of whom is one of my dearest friends, uh, do a production rewrite, very short turnaround, a lot of pages, but a production rewrite for a movie called the Spiderwick Chronicles. And so, uh, I, I was holed up in, in an office working on that. And at the same time, I had set up two different pilots at two different networks. And so both of those were due. And so I was working on those and I was just by myself all the time, right? At the end of this long process, neither neither one of the pilots went, by the way, and Spiderwick was Spiderwick, but I was just a part of a team. Um, when it was over, though, I remember calling my agent at the time at ICM and saying, hey, um, I can't stand myself anymore. Like I, I cannot be alone in a room anymore. I, I have to get into, and I, this was in television. What I was talking about like I have to get into a room of other people and surround myself with some talent and learn some stuff because I'm stagnating in my own little pond. Here.
0: But that, what well, that's pretty self-aware. I mean, what, what kind of writer are you? Are you very focused, disciplined, productive? I, I, jam through stuff. I
1: think so. I think so. But but I'm also very. I'm a people person. I, my wife calls me a golden retriever. You know, I am that. Like, I, you just keep throwing that ball, and I'll keep running out for it and bringing it back as many times as you, I can. You until need I fall some down. sort of. back I need. Back and that. Forth. I need yeah. that back and forth. I need some collaborative energy, and um, and so that's so. So my agent at the time said, uh, "Well, uh, great timing because I just got a call from CSI New York and." They're looking for somebody to come in. And I'd never watched the show. I'd never watched really any of the CSIs. How long had, uh, was CSI New York new? in or? its fourth season okay. at that point. And, uh, and I had written, I did write, uh, I wrote a freelance episode of Supernatural in its first season. And, uh, and that sort of took on a life of its own. It spun off these recurring characters, which are still popular with the fans and have been around almost every season since. So I'd had that experience, but I had really not worked on a staff at all. Um, cause you can't count my mercy point, quote unquote, show running experience. <laughs> and so, so, uh, so I went in and the greatest thing about this particular interview was they didn't want to hear because they were in their fourth season. They really didn't want to hear any pitches of episodic ideas. They said, uh, have Trey come in with, uh, just interesting factoids about New York city and the world of science and medicine. So it was a great, like, fact-finding mission. I spent a couple of weeks in libraries and just coming up with crazy stuff online and then just went in and pitched it. And I got the job and I was there for six years and 130 episodes wow. of CSI New York. And And I always say this to everyone. It's funny, the show that I'm working on right now, Rush Hour, one of our other writers, um, Crystal Ziv, was a longtime veteran of CSI Miami. And she's in agreement with me about this, which is that... CSI and that, the way that entire franchise worked and all of the shows, it was the ultimate showrunner training school. It's what I needed frankly before I did before Mercy, Mercy Point. Point. So the good news after you know six years and 130 episodes of Killing People, uh, the good news was coming out of CSI New York, I finally got it. like I understood what needed to be done. So uh, it's a,
0: it, it, is it that it's a well-oiled machine because they had it established or what, what, what was it about You know,
1: part of the culture that was that was and I don't know if this is true of other shows but certainly true of the CSI franchise and I think so uh, you know up to this day um, is that they would always the women who ran those shows had this amazing habit of taking even baby staff writers and throwing them immediately into the deep end. So when it was your episode you were producing that episode. Whether you know, and it, it was sink or swim. They would just throw you right in, and and if you were lucky enough to be able to swim, you were learning so much in that process uh, that by the time you know, by the time you graduated from that franchise, you knew how to make those little mini movies every week.
0: So it was the prove it or lose it school, a hundred percent. Yeah.
1: So I finally got that experience. So that was really invaluable, and uh, wouldn't trade it for the world.
0: Can you tell me the uh, most unusual medical? Thing that you
1: ended up uh, oh my having, gosh! To... Yeah, you know, it's funny. Um, I remember. Well, what I can tell you is one of the very f- one of those that first group of weird facts that I that I shared in my first meeting on the show. I wound up using in an episode later. That shot at USC, which was part of the fun for me, but um, it was a story about uh, uh, how in the 1960s uh, at JFK there was a, a cargo worker for a major airline who was basically on the take. And he would, when cargo planes would arrive and unload stuff onto the tarmac, when no one was looking, he would crack open containers and just pilfer contents. And so one particular ill-fated day, he went to crack open a container with no idea what was inside. And he mistakenly let out all of these South American parrots. And... (laughs) And so years went by, and to this day, there are these flocks of wild parrots that take up residence at a couple of different universities in, in Manhattan. And, uh, and so I shared that story. And so we wound up using that as a, as a classic sort of CSI evidence trail when, uh, you know, there was some feather evidence or whatever that led <laughs> us to a, a Brooklyn, fictional Brooklyn College. Um, but we wound up, God bless them, I remember, I'll never forget watching the set deck people for CSI New York hang... Dozens and dozens of fake parrots in the trees at USC, <laughs> probably cursing my name the entire time.
0: One thing but. that I kept thinking about, and I, I've had other people on this pod, on a group podcast mm-hmm. and talk about the, that franchise, is that at some point... With, there were nine CSIs on yeah, the air yeah, at yeah. one point and you would think you would run out of possibilities Whoa. that you would just have to start making science up at one point.
1: Well, you know, we tried to be, and we always had science tech advisors and sure. we had, you know, on our show, we had a 20-year veteran of the NYPD. We also had a, a, a former district attorney. So you tried to, you know, we tried to keep things plausible and believable and, and as realistic as at possible. At least
0: grounded in some sort of reality. Yeah, 100%. Obviously, you had to embellish
1: you Yeah, know, but the tr- you, you touched on the trickiest part of working in that franchise was, you know, again, I came in season four of of CSI New York, but, you know, hard enough to come into a show that's, you know, been four seasons or more and come up with ideas that everyone in the writer's room hasn't already heard. But when there's two other shows in the franchise that have been on almost twice as long, every idea you come up with, get shot down. And, and it got to a point where by the time I'd been there six years, I always felt bad for the new writers who would come in and they would always come in on day one with their notebook full of ideas. And then they would just be gunned down and bloody by <laughs> the end of the day. Just, yeah, we did it. We did it. We did
0: Is it. Is there a CSI historian in the room who's just, who's no, having to cross check? No, other what
1: happened was there was this, there was this magic number and an email address at Bruckheimer that you would have to call. The minute you came up with an idea <laughs> Or any kind of new science or technology, you would clear it. You would you would call it in or email it in to oh, that so number. side there's like Brutt- jockeying, for position. And you'd be jockeying for position. state of the 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 of the other writers the right. state of the 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 state was like yeah. state <laughs> That was like kissing your cousin. And, and so we really like, It was very competitive, and so it was super hard to come up with stuff that hadn't been done. By the time we got to the ninth season of CSI New York, much like all the other CSIs I know from talking to writers who worked on the other shows, we were just like a tired ring of carnival ponies marching in a circle. (laughs) Well,
0: (laughs) I was going to say, at some point, obviously you had a good experience there, learned a lot. But writing a procedural, despite the fact that you're scrambling to come up with a new... Thing in right. every episode uh, that format that
1: template must have become a little yeah. just rote after a while yeah i mean the good news is you can import it elsewhere later <laughs> and i'm <laughs> certainly you know in part doing that now but um but yeah you know it, it's the the great thing about csi uh, is that you know it was it was always true to itself it always knew what it was and mm-hmm. it was on a network that still to this day knows exactly what it is and what its viewers want. I think that's why CBS is as powerful and strong and successful to this day as it is. Yeah, um, and
0: so. and really, what, maybe the last major network that's still producing television in the way that it is. Yeah. I mean, they, they're they're the one, the the, the three camera sitcom. Yeah. the the,
1: the procedural,
0: the standalone episode, yeah. you know, show that sort of thing. It's yeah. uh, very now. So you went on, you worked on a revolution.
1: I went to revolution. Yeah, Eric Kripke, who created Supernatural and who became my friend through that process of working on Supernatural, had wanted me to come in season one of Revolution, but I was still on a deal at CBS, and so uh, I finally came in. Actually, before I went to Revolution, I worked on a on a one off reality series with Anthony Zeiker called Who Done It for ABC, All which right. was a complete kick and a lot of fun. Because um, Zyker's got so much energy. Um, so that was fun. And then, yeah, I went to Revolution, which was a completely different experience.
0: Yeah, you really have been <sighs> jumping around in genre and, and type of show. And, yeah. yeah. You know, which is great that you haven't let yourself get pigeonholed. I guess you could have early on, especially with um, I s- still know what you did. Yeah. Could, there were a lot of offers that to write slasher movies after that, and right. but
1: again, and I, from working in advertising, I'm sensitive to the power of the niche. I I understand how much easier it makes your agents. It makes it easier for them to market you when sure. they can keep you. In. And I also have friends who have been tremendously su- successful that way by just staying in one field.
0: But did you make a conscious effort to I, make a left turn after every did. job?
1: I kind of did. I, I, I'm always, and you know, I did the same thing, you know, uh, just before I started on, on what I'm working on now. I I, I've, I very I always try to make a concerted effort to, to push myself in a new direction. Like, what is the story that I haven't told yet? So that's what made revolution really appealing to me you know um this sort of nouveau uh nouveau american western um you know soap with with all these interesting genre fringes uh that we could explore it was a it was a lot of fun and um and you know we shot in austin texas and and uh that was a, an amazing place to film and the writing staff of that show. It was truly tremendous. I, I count some of them now among my closest friends in L.A., so that was a great experience, too. But it was tough. It was a tough show to write for. And then um, The Messengers. Then The Messengers. Yeah, literally, this is a crazy story. So we all thought we were coming back for a third season of Revolution, and uh, and and I was on a deal that was going to require me to go back. So we were, you know, I, I you really had set. taken very few meetings, and you always take a couple, just in case and one of those couple that I'd taken was for a pilot called The Messengers and um but I really honestly didn't think anything was going to come of it so I remember saying to Owen O'Donnell uh, who created The Messengers who had had a very similar experience to my mercy point of it all like he wrote a pilot to get staffed and then suddenly it was shot and then it was in contention for for series and and so I recognized that look of terror in his eyes. Uh, as brilliant as he is, but I remember sort of basically saying to him, "Gosh, I, I hope I get a chance to work on this. I probably won't, but just know that I'll be watching because I enjoyed the pilot so much." But really, thought I was coming back to Revolution, and uh, and we were supposed to come back um, on a Monday, and so that weekend prior, I had promised all of my kids that over hiatus because I'd been such a crappy dad <laughs> in the year <laughs> previous on Revolution, I said, listen, when, when, when I get to hiatus, you pick a place in the United States that you want to go, and we're, we'll go for a weekend. So my daughter wanted to go to Coachella, so I took her to Coachella. <laughs> and and uh, my youngest son wanted to go to Seattle. I took him to Seattle. And then uh, my, my middle child, my, my oldest son, wanted to go to Chicago. And so I said, great, we're going to go to Chicago. But the way the timing worked out, it was literally the weekend before I was supposed to go back to work. We get on the plane 30,000 feet in the air on our uh, uh, ascent out of LA and for whatever reason I decided to get the Wi-Fi and to be honest with you I had been sort of quietly th- dreading although I loved the people I'd been kind of quietly dreading going back to work on revolution on that Monday it was just it was it was it was tough and I wasn't sure how a effectively i was contributing to the continuing telling of that story really I, I knew that i loved the people and i and i and i knew that i had a place there but i i just was itching to do something different oh wow and uh not that i by the way i never take a job for granted so you know i i'm always more than happy to uh be telling someone's no, but story
0: creatively but, you weren't feeling fulfilled for some reason creatively
1: itching. i was i was yeah. a, feeling a little juiced at, yeah. at least um So we're we're in the air. We're 30,000 feet up. For whatever reason, out of boredom, I decide to get the Wi-Fi. And I get the Wi-Fi, and suddenly my phone lights up with messages saying, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry to hear about Revolution. Oh, my gosh. And so I I realize, oh, my God, I've just been fired at 30,000 feet. I had no idea. Which, by
0: the way, is a great title, if you ever. (laughs) Exactly.
1: Uh, So that was a new one. And so then I spend the next half hour sending my own condolences and thank yous and all that stuff. And then I sit back quietly next to my son and I'm thinking, well, I guess we won't be spending quite as much money in Chicago this weekend and <laughs> and I guess I got to find a job when I get back. And then as we begin our initial descent into Chicago, my phone lights up again. And suddenly it's all of these as soon as you land, you got to call the uh you got to call CBS Studios. As soon as you land, you got to call the CW and it's all about the messengers. And by the time basically long story short, by the time I checked into the hotel, my poor son in the car on the way to the hotel looking out the building. Look, look at that, Dad. Look at that. And I'm working the phones like a bad Hollywood cliche. <laughs> you,
0: you said we were going to yeah. have time together. Exactly.
1: And the cats in the cradle <laughs> and the sovers were... Anyway, uh, <laughs> every TV writer listening right now knows that song exactly, by heart. Exactly. Anyway, point is, by the time we check into the hotel, I've been hired to come on The Messengers. So... That was an amazing story, but uh, it was a tremendous experience um, working with Owen O'Donnell and putting together a staff, and which we which we did here in Encino, and then the show shot in Albuquerque. We got most of the Breaking Bad crew, uh, incredibly talented and 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 uh, dedicated and passionate crew, and then an amazing ensemble of actors, um, and that was honestly just heaven on earth from page one to fade to black 13 episodes later uh it was and and in part it was because i was no longer that dumb kid running mercy point right i actually knew what i was doing and i actually knew how to get the job done and
0: so the trauma of
1: actually having to make all those calls and
0: make all it it
1: became sort of second nature to. yeah it really did and and i i am endlessly grateful for that opportunity and I am fiercely proud of what we accomplished. And although, you know, we're only two episodes away from, from the end of the series, it wasn't renewed ultimately for a second season. It was, uh, it was just really a super satisfying ride. Yeah. You, so you looked at your watch like <laughs> the countdown is continuing. Yeah, no. Will well, the, you know. Will that, the fans be uh, By the satisfied? way, that's the promo part of me. It's literally <laughs> yes. two more, only two more episodes. <laughs> um, will the fans be happy? I think they will. I think, uh, you know, one of the interesting things about, you know, it draws from a biblical mythology in the book of Revelation and tells the story of seven complete strangers who suddenly find themselves with a new destiny that they never expected, regardless of their differing belief systems. and, and, um, And so it's a story of reluctant prophets. But the way that the way the first season mapped out, I mean, frankly, we had mapped out the first seven seasons, but the way the first season mapped out. It is its own self-contained adventure, and so they'll have a sense of closure. They will absolutely have a sense of closure. There's a there's a little. Well, I'm not going to. I won't spoil anything else. No, Okay. But uh, I I I hope I believe in my heart of hearts they will be satisfied. Those those diehard viewers who have, thank God, been watching. So here we go
0: with a complete left turn again in your career, and. we'll get the chance to plug it here. Don't worry. Have your tagline <laughs> ready. Uh, the the trailer's already been out there. Yeah, yeah. But uh, tell me now, because this is the kind of thing you'll get because this is the world we live in. Yeah. And so I- anything you do mm-hmm. is immediately wide open to interpretation, criticism, uh, trolling, negativity, and, th- and that of cynicism course. I mentioned before. Of course. So defend to me mm-hmm. the reboot, yes. revamp, Reintroduction of characters introduced
1: in an incredibly
0: popular mm-hmm. action comedy from mm-hmm. how many years
1: ago? <laughs> uh, it's going back a ways. Yeah, there have been there have been a number of those films. Right, but uh, I, we're this, talking about Rush Hour. Yes, this is an easy task uh, for me to accomplish yeah. in terms of defense. And because, um, well,
0: it is for me too because if I was in your shoes, I would I would. I would be able to easily well, too, but l- go me, ahead let
1: me start with how I approach this creatively so finishing up the messengers there were a couple of different offers to go and run a couple of things uh, which which were exciting and interesting in different ways but but we're gonna take me down the same sort of path, mm-hmm. and, uh, and and we have
0: learned that yeah, Trey don't, Trey don't play that I'm way.
1: Kind of resistant to it. So <laughs> so I went and uh, and and met on a number of things. But honestly, I I, I picked up a copy of the, the the pilot script for Rush Hour, which was written uh, by Bill Lawrence and and Blake McCormick. Bill Lawrence, of course, is the the creator of Scrubs and Cougar Town and yeah. three thousand other shows. And, uh, and he and Blake, uh, Blake had worked on Cougartown as well, and, and the two of them wrote this pilot. And to be 100% bluntly honest, uh, when I picked it up and I saw the cover, I thought, oh, Rush Hour. The first thing I thought was, four years ago, I went in with one of my former agents who had become a producer to Arthur Sarkissian, who produced all of the Rush Hour movies, To pitch rush hour of the series and to have a meeting about it. And uh, and before anything could happen, I wound up taking another job. And so it went on without me. And I remember walking out of that meeting thinking, somebody's going to land this gig sooner or later and somebody hopefully will do a really good job with it. And so when I picked up the script, I picked it up out of curiosity to finally see like, oh, let's see how it was done. By the time I put that script down, I was deeply in love (laughs) with it at a level that surprised me because I thought, okay, yeah, I know all the rush hour movies and I know what the beats will be basically. I certainly know who the characters are. The way Bill and Blake rendered the script was so fresh and above and beyond anything else. So funny. Like, I don't remember the last time I read a script where I laughed out loud over a dozen times. Um, that was certainly the case with Rush Hour, and yet what it did so masterfully was take th- that, that, again, that CBS comfort zone of of a procedural, a crime procedural, and honored that spirit, but took it, honestly, I think, back to a model that that helped make CBS what it is back in the 70s and the 80s, where there were just sort of these classic, fun, cop action shows. Right. And
0: yeah, iconic shows with that were not, uh, you know, I think of when I was growing up, they weren't Pretty Boys, they no. were Cannon and Barnaby Jones. <laughs> exactly. You had your old guy and your fat guy, <laughs> exactly. and uh, but th- but there was they th- uh, was Rockford Files. Rockford Files was NBC, but yeah, uh, same NBC, kind but they, of thing. That that sensibility is what uh, I thought of immediately, which yeah. is they're they're going to tell a story, and there's going to be a kind of a whodunit element to it. And there's going to be a crime element to it, but you've got this great character and there's humor in it and that's that's
1: critical a hundred percent and then they went and got steve franks who who created the series psych and uh and is not only you know incredibly talented and incredibly funny but one of the nicest people i've ever met in my life and so I, i i i and i rarely do this again because i probably because of the advertising experience i like, I know how to market myself, and I know how to handle these meetings when you go in, and I know, you know, how you got to keep some of the cards up and play a little mystery about yourself and, you know, make yourself the shiny object in the room, all those things. But this is one of the only times that I can really remember in my career walking into somebody's office, in the first case it was it was Bill Lawrence's, and and just laying my cards on the table and saying, I got to tell you, there's no show I would rather work on in this town than Rush Hour. And in part, it was because they had done such a masterful job on the pilot. But it was also because it was honoring the spirit of what's next and what's going to be new in my life and in my work. And for me, it was the opportunity to write comedy, which I've done in little bits and pieces all along in a lot of the stuff that I've done, but never at this level.
0: I was going to say, there's nothing in your IMDb list that that overtly says comedy.
1: No, I mean, and I don't count the, you know, Timon and Pumbaa cartoons and that kind of stuff. (laughs) know, we can count it. No, but adult, sophisticated comedy, you know, I just hadn't done that. Right. And so that became super appealing to me. So I I just put my cards on the table, and I did it again with Steve Franks, and... uh, and man, I'm telling you, it's been we're a month and a half into it now, working out of Manhattan Beach Studios, an amazingly talented group of writers from the drama world, from the comedy world, um, but just the most incredibly kind, respectful, good-hearted people. And um, you know, and everybody seems to to uh to subscribe to this notion that has been a big driving force in my life, which is life's too short to hang with assholes. And <laughs> And we all govern ourselves accordingly, and so I am
0: shocked, actually, at the number of people I've talked to, even in here, uh, who are just really good people. With oh. the exception of Bob Cushell. every <laughs> well, we and, all know Bob. No, and I mean that yeah. uh, he's just a, he's a horrible person, <laughs> except for the fact that he has recommended that all you guys come in and do this. So now I owe him
1: horrible slash lovable slash horribly lovable.
0: But see, but you see what he's done? He's yeah. recommended people for me to talk to, but he's going to hold it over me for the longest time. You just wanted us all to come in and clean up his mess. That's all. <laughs> but no, I'm just discovering what, what lovely, kind of gracious, giving, warm people are. I, I <coughs> And I, I assume... That it's like that because nobody wants to work with assholes, and I've... and maybe it used there used to be a time where people I just talked with G- Jeff Greenstein about this a, oh, a yeah. lot, which is there must have been a time I know there was a time where ruling by the iron fist and making everybody tremble in their boots must have been more of the mode yeah it just doesn't seem like people have the time or
1: the patience or the energy to put up with that well let's be clear people process their egos in different ways and so there are still those shows where you know you probably sob yourself quietly to sleep at night (laughs) um but the truth is uh you know look we're we are all as writers uh, wildly oversensitive neurotic people right and we all sit too close to the fire um, and all of us get burned in different ways in that process. and, and then some of us process the, those experiences differently. Some of us,, you know, I shouldn't say yes, some folks uh, will play to people's weaknesses instead of to their strengths. Uh, and some people will overcompensate for their own insecurities by, you know, taking full advantage of others. Uh, that's, thankfully, I've my experiences working with people like that have been few and far between. Um, and and most certainly, uh, I would have to say, you know, M- M- Messengers was was the single most positive, creative experience I've had so far in my career. Just uh, just in terms of recognizing my ability to run a show, uh, that was great. But Rush Hour is making me laugh every day. Yeah. And,
0: that's a great thing to be able to do. Yeah. And that's incredible, man.
1: Especially, you know, again, coming off the, as much as I love The Messengers and as much as I'm proud of it, coming off the doom and gloom of, you know, the end times, <laughs> <laughs> to, to, to get to two cops in a car making each other laugh, that's fantastic. Yeah,
0: I'm actually kind of happy to see, Trey, because you do seem like like a happy-go-lucky kind of guy. <laughs> you seem to be fairly well-adjusted. If you had gone through seven seasons of, yeah, <laughs> of that... it might not be the same story. I'm, I'm not really sure what we'd be seeing now. Yeah. All right, so we never really got Around to though, let's go back. Circle back around to the rush hour. Um, this is the ad guy version of defending the reboot of this in uh, you know three sentences or
1: less. Uh, you know, uh, look, rush hour is a love letter to Los Angeles uh, and to cop action. Uh, it is Justin hires who plays the uh, the uh, the Chris Tucker role and John Foo who you know picks up where uh, where Jackie Chan left off actually trained under Jackie Chan uh, so he's a bit of a martial arts master himself these are two tremendously talented actors um Wendy Malik we have in the cast as well who's a veteran of many many popular shows and and a number of other super talented individuals uh are going to help us tell this story which in some ways uh is is true certainly to the essence and the spirit of the of the successful movie franchise you know these are These are uh, this is a a wisecracking Los Angeles cop who is, you know, reluctantly and begrudgingly stuck with uh, a visiting Hong Kong detective. These two men could not be any more different in their lives and in their mental and emotional makeup. Um, uh, But they also complement each other in the most wonderful yin yang ways. And and you get to play all of that great fish-out-of-water humor, you also get, for me, you know, especially as someone who's about to celebrate 30 years in L.A., it's nice to revisit what it means to just arrive here. Oh, yeah. And and to have to sort of try and wrap your head around this place.
0: Yeah, and I don't know that I see that many shows that actually present Los Angeles in a way that I recognize
1: and that's one of my favorite aspects of this show is that we are absolutely embracing Los Angeles as a living breathing beautiful slash repellent character <laughs> in this series and and I always say like every to, to people who visit Los Angeles everything you can love about Los Angeles and there are millions of things to love about here this place. You can also hate, depending on the day mm. and the traffic patterns. Yeah. Um, and it might
0: be the exact same thing from yeah, day to day. Yeah. yeah, so
1: it's fun to re-explore that through character. It's fun, frankly, just to shoot a show in Los Angeles... Um, you know, and not have to fake it. You know, those six years on CSI New York, we covered a lot of palm trees and 98% <laughs> of that show was shot here. They, they uh, There was a scene shot
0: over here at the, at the Sherman Oaks yeah, gallery. We're yeah. just
1: talking about near the fountain. Yeah. Everybody's wearing overcoats yeah. and earmuffs. Yeah, it's a <laughs> true nightmare for everyone involved. But, but yeah, we get to. By the own. way,
0: hallelujah for actually shooting something here yeah. on location in Los Angeles. We're, sh- we're
1: not just shooting here; we are embracing it, we are owning it, we are featuring it. We are going back to, you know, a- a- every iconic uh, location you can imagine in Los Angeles. But we're coming at it from a different angle. Uh, we're trying to teach people new things about these places right. through this character that. Uh, that John Fu is playing uh, Detective Lee, and and it's so it's it's really I think people are going to enjoy it wildly for a couple of reasons. One, it will be true to the spirit of the films that they enjoyed. Uh, two, it will scratch that you know uh, that constant CBS itch for. You know, a procedural, uh, a, a question mark over a body or over a crime that has to be solved that will be a twisted fun puzzle, uh, not just for the audience to solve, but then to watch these two, you know, uh, uh, completely wildly, wonderfully mismatched detectives try and and solve for them. It's I think I think people are going to thoroughly enjoy this one.
0: Well, the the, the trailer looks great it, it it is the quintessential buddy you know, thing. Yeah, and it it really does work as a concept, and I, I'm only giving you a hard time just because I know the rest of the world's going to give you guys but a hard you know time what? until You're, the thing shows
1: up. It's interesting, though, Larry, because I just read an article I think in the New York Times about um, why so much hit television right now makes you feel so bad, and <laughs> and they're mostly talking about a lot of the cable stuff, right? Uh, you know, many of which I watch and love uh, I do myself too.
0: as a viewer but everything's so dark
1: everything is so dark you were talking so about depressing. los
0: angeles oh my god if i lived in the los angeles that true detective is in right <laughs> would now have moved away three episodes oh no ago. i would have killed myself <laughs> oh my god it's i mean mad max looks cheerier That's than that los angeles correct and there's Holy look cow. there's a
1: place for all of that stuff sure. and and i am i i'm certainly not going to throw rocks at, at 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 you know beautifully executed dramas, but, but I also feel like, and I, and this may be another takeaway I got from the messengers because in spite of the doom and gloom backdrop of revelation, it was ultimately a series about hope Mm -hmm. and, uh, and about how strangers, you know, band together and rise above, uh, the ugliness and the darkness. And, and so not to sound too Pollyanna about it, but, uh, I think coming away from that made me desire writing more of that. And, um, and so Rush Hour is absolutely scratching that itch for me. I mean, it's, it's fun. It's funny. It's a ride. You know, you're going to be able to tune it at any time and enjoy yourself immensely. Uh, and you're not going to, you know, look, I, again, not to cast aspersions. I love The Walking Dead. I love the way it's written. I love the way it's performed. I love the production design. I love everything about that. But when I watch it, I feel like crap on toast every time before I go to bed.
0: I, I... I'm am binge watching it right now because yeah. I, I've never seen an episode and I knew I needed to watch it. But my wife was never going to put up with the gore. Yeah, so yeah, I'm yeah. actually in a place now right now where I can binge watch it a couple of days a week. Yeah, right. And I, I just realized as we've been talking because I've been really kind of. Depressed the last couple of days with absolutely no reason <laughs> yeah. to be, and I realize it's because I've been watching like two of those a night before yeah. I go to bed. Man,
1: it is so bleak. It, it is oh, so it's a bleak. bummer. And so, I mean,
0: and Sophia, poor little, cute little yeah, Sophia.
1: Poor Sophia. Yeah, I just. So yeah, yeah rush hour is not going to make you feel that way, Larry. <laughs> okay, thank you. It's going to make you actually enjoy yourself oh for forty-two God. minutes, and I- uh, and then you know. I need some light at the end of the tunnel, Trey. That's what you want to then watch.
0: All right. Well, then please tell me as a USC guy that at some point in one of the multiple seasons of uh, Rush Hour, that there will be something at... The original Tommy's oh, at Beverly and Rampart. That's a great
1: idea. we will make sure we add that to our list. Very picturesque. Well, very we're already LA. talking about ways to shoot at SC because it is so film friendly there. And I know yeah. that from, from multiple episodes of, of CSI. But and every, every, every other car <laughs> commercial exactly, on television. Exactly. Yeah. But uh, Tommy's, that's a good call. Oh, come on. Because we that talk a lot stand? about, well, we talk a lot about too about uh, among their many differences, you know, are, are the culinary differences between Carter and Lee.
0: Well, how you know, look, if it, 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 he's going Got to show him what a double chili cheese <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> really looks like, and
1: then he's got to deal with the aftermath in a stakeout later. So <laughs> that's right when they're stuck <laughs> in the car. There's no seats. You got
0: to stand there that's at the thing. Right. Get
1: a, a thousand napkins. That's right.
0: Okay, you can take that with you. Okay, I'm giving you, you that for free. All right, well. And you can pay me back by uh, when you need a quintessential LA disc jockey on there the radio. Hundred oh percent. See, there's one of those things about LA you hate.
1: I just pitched myself no, to can, you. You know what? Let's can we geek out on radio for just one second? Absolutely. I don't know when we're. I didn't even know when we started recording. So I. I don't know when we're done. Um uh, okay, We so, haven't started recording okay, yet. So the word, <laughs> I'll great. do it now. Perfect. This was all warm up. <laughs> all right, so here's here's my LA radio geek out. So I do um uh, uh I'll go I'll go all the way back to when I was a kid growing up in Tulsa. And there was a local AM radio station called KAKC. And it's when I first discovered my love for radio. I flipped on KAKC and immediately even as a, you know, whatever I was, 10, 11, 12-year-old, I could tell it didn't feel of Tulsa, it felt like it was almost too cool for Tulsa, and I say that with great love. Like my my Tulsa friends listening right now, if they're are any, here throwing things, at the, but like <laughs> I I love where I grew up, right? But K K C probably K K C was like it was perfect. It yeah. had it had these amazing personalities on air personalities. It had a great top forty playlist, but it had these jingles yeah. which were. Instantly memorable and that I almost enjoyed listening to as much as all the rest of it. OK, I knew nothing about its origins. Um, but one of the disc jockeys at KAKC uh, is a, another super talented voiceover uh, artist here in Los Angeles, a guy named Bo Weaver. And uh, and he had been a jock on KAKC. And, and, you know, years later, I wound up producing radio commercials with Bo and we became friends he's the one that finally explained to me why KAKC sounded the way it did. And it's because it was born of uh, KHJ. Mm -hmm. So KHJ, I'm sure you know the story of here in Los Angeles, was a floundering station in the 60s, and then this young uh, uh, program director came in and uh, with his partners, sort of came up with this concept of Boss Radio and reinvented KHJ. And part of Boss Radio was... These jingles, yeah, and the jingles were done by a guy named Johnny Mann. So I'm telling you, stuff you already right. know, but, Johnny but maybe Mann it's fascinating for at least one or two of your listeners. <laughs> no, no, it's great. So Johnny Mann was a Grammy winning composer, and he he was and he had his own television series, and he was also the band leader uh, for what's his name, Joey Bishop, very accomplished musician. But the Johnny Man singers were brought in to do the original KHJ jingles. And it became such a part of the sonic identity of Boss Radio that then it was imported across the country, and every major market had its own Boss Radio station, and they all had the Johnny Man jingles. And then at a certain point, when that became wildly successful, they decided to try the same format in mid-size markets. And that's when KAKC got its Johnny Man jingles and the Boss Radio format. That's why it sounded too cool for Tulsa. I just didn't (laughs) understand it at the time. All right. So long story even longer— I'm at CSI New York and 15 years ago, this December, I started a a podcast of my own, which is a music podcast. Uh, It's just it's it's a compilation of my favorite songs of every year. And uh, and people had told me over the years, you know, you should you should get a you should get jingles. And I would always joke. Well, I would never have jingles unless they could be Johnny Man jingles because th- those are the only jingles that I care about. And by the way, if you if you live in LA, you can still hear his work every day on K Earth. You know that whole K Earth one hundred and one. Those that's the Johnny it's Man singers. So. Ninety three K H J. That's exactly right. Yep. So, um, so I'm in my last year at CSI New York, and uh, and my assistant comes in one day, and he'd heard me say, make this Johnny Man comment a couple of times. So he comes in one day and he puts down a piece of paper on the desk. And it's got an email address. I say, what's this? He says, it's Johnny Mann's email address. I didn't even know the man was still alive. So I sit down and I write this unabashed fan letter to Johnny Mann. A man I've never met, doesn't know me from Adam. And I basically say, all of that, you don't know me from Adam. But when I grew up as a kid, I listened to KAKC. It had your jingles. I didn't even know they were your jingles. But they are responsible in large part for the beginning of my long, lifelong love affair with radio. So I just wanted to say thank you for those jingles, and I still enjoy listening to K-Earth jingles every every day because of that. My phone rings a couple days later, and God bless him, Johnny Mann, who has since passed but then was in his 80s, calls me up and says, are you the man who sent me this email? And just, you know, is the sweetest man, says, no one has ever taken the time to send me, you know, a, a letter like that, and... I just wanted to thank you. You know, I've retired. He lived down in uh, in, in South Carolina with his wife Betty of many years, and basically, he at we had this lovely conversation just about radio. And at the end of it, he says, "Well, listen, how can I repay your kindness?" And I said, "Well, you just did. We just I got to have a conversation with Johnny Mann. He said, "No, well, listen, you know, uh, you mentioned you do a podcast. How how would you like some jingles for that podcast?" And I I blushed literally. I said, "Well, I." <laughs> That's really sweet, but you know, you're, you're retired and you, you know, you said, well, but every once in a while station groups will call me up and they, they want to, they want to, you know, have me do some jingle work. And if I can get enough of them together, maybe I could piggyback you onto the back of one of those sessions. So I humbly said yes, but I thought that, well, that's the end of it. I'll never. Then over the course of a year, Johnny would call me when he would see a CSI in New York that he liked or see something I'd written. And he was always so sweet, so kind and flattering. Suddenly, in a November, he calls me up and says, "Well, you still want those jingles?" I said, what, "What do you mean?" He said, "Well, I got I got session time booked at Ricky Skaggs Studio in Nashville. I'm going to be doing some jingles for a for a station group, and I thought maybe I could piggyback you on. You wanted the jingles?" I said, "Yes," but now, like, I, I I'm privately terrified because I can't afford Johnny Man Jingles. Like, I I don't I, I don't even I wouldn't begin to know what's involved with that. So I so I basically say that I say, "Gosh, this is so kind of you to offer, but you know, this is your livelihood, Johnny, and the podcast is a hobby for me, and I really, I'm sure I can't afford your jingles." He says, "Well, you've been so kind. How about how about if I charge you the ninety three K H J price, which was like ridiculous?" And long story short, I got Johnny Man jingles for my podcast. <laughs> So in a way that you can only appreciate someone who's been in radio and is a a successful voiceover person like yourself, there is no greater narcissistic pleasure. (laughs) Like on the worst days, I will just get in my car and just play those jingles just to hear 11 people (laughs) sing my name. Like it is the greatest feeling ever. So oh, there's my radio geek out story. That's amazing.
0: Yeah. Uh, what could, you want to plug the podcast? Real? Quick? Uh, it's
1: called Tradio, and and uh, you know it's uh, it's something that it's a complete labor of love. I hesitate to even bring it up in the in the presence of someone who oh, has a legitimate wh- podcast like yourself. But, whatever. But, uh, that's uh, yeah. great.
0: Oh man. Anyway, all right. Well, geez. Well, I I, I have jingle envy.
1: Definitely. Well, we started a radio. I thought we should come back to radio. absolutely. Yeah.
0: Hey, Trey, it, it's been a pleasure, man. I, I It's just a delight talking to you. I, I hope that Rush Hour is a huge hit for you guys.
1: I have a feeling it's going to be fine. Thank <laughs> you very, very much. It's I really appreciate that, Larry. It will be fun for everybody. But uh, When does it debut? Uh, we're supposed to debut Premier. in January. Uh, uh, what? Uh, we don't have... Well, it's mid-season. Uh. Uh, so it'll be January of 2016 unless, and this is always possible... They move us up earlier. Yeah. There have been certain rumblings about that. Yeah, because
0: it looks strong and, uh, okay, okay. crossing we'll my fingers. We shall because, see. Because, frankly, I need something to get me out of my walking <laughs>
1: like, dead malaise. You might want to give that a, a little bit of a break. Oh, my God. <laughs> All right. Trey, thanks a lot. Thank you that. very much, Larry. It's been a pleasure. Get a monkey.
0: Get a monkey.